This is Chapter 104 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we feature a pair of historical fiction novels in which American immigrants take center stage. And while the books are set more than 100 years apart, you'll notice some things never change. The internment of Japanese Americans during World War II is well documented. But did you know thousands of German Americans suffered the same fate? That little-known U.S. policy drives the narrative in the last year of the war, the latest historical novel from Susan Meissner. We recently spoke about what it means to be American and the powerful way in which relationships and experiences can define us. It actually broke a new record for how quickly I teared up while reading a book. (laughs) I I think I I made it to chapter two. (laughs) So, So why don't you tell me what inspired this story? Sure. Well, I came to learn that um, just like Japanese Americans were interned here in the U.S. during the war, uh, German Americans were also interned, and some of them repatriated or sent back to their home countries in in prisoner exchanges. And I had never heard that before. I I came across a nonfiction book that detailed this, and to me, it was a story of humanity, of ordinary people going through a very extraordinary circumstance. It seemed very compelling to me. And because it was an untold story, I'd never heard of that. I'd never read another novel uh, related to that. I thought, well, I need to tell this story. And so um, this story came out of that. And I think a lot of Americans, you know, they they know that Japanese Americans were interned. Mm -hmm. But like you, I had no idea that Mm -hmm. German Americans faced the same fate. Right. And because of that, I feel like that that's the, the reason why this story um, need, needed a place, because it's a story of real people. It's a story of humanity. And I, I love books that kind of take me into the past and show me a side of a particular event like World War II, which we feel like there are so many books out there. Sometimes it can, it can feel like oh, I've, I've read everything there is. But this, uh, this, I think, needs some lights thrown on it for lots of reasons. And so it... Um, I, I learned a lot in writing it, and I, and I feel like anyone who reads this book will also learn a great deal. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the story itself? The book is mainly um, the story of a, of a woman named Elise Sontag. We meet her at 81 in the opening pages of the book, and she's revealing to the reader that um, you know, she was interned with her family when she was a, a teenager. Mom and dad were German immigrants, but they had been in the United States for um, 16 years when the war breaks out. And even though dad was never convicted or even charged with a war crime, he's nonetheless interned for the, for the duration of the war because of some circumstantial evidence. And that, that changes her life, really. Um, she meets a Japanese girl there. They become best friends, and that friendship will also change her life. And um, when she's not detailing what that experience is like, she's letting us know that she, she just found out she has Alzheimer's, and she can feel her identity slipping from her, just like it did when she was 13, and she was interned in this camp and then sent to Germany, a country she'd never been to and did not speak the language, and that she wants to find Mariko, her friend, before she dies. And so it's, it's kind of a story about identity. Um, who are we really? Do we decide who we are? Or is our identity imposed on us by other people? And also, I get the sense that, it, too, it's about those rare friendships that really can withstand yeah. the test of time. Yeah, I think really good friends kind of show us who we are. And so with a book about identity, who am I really? Sometimes we see ourselves reflected in the people that we love the most, good friends like, like that. 
You mentioned that the these two girls meet in an internment camp, and mm-hmm. it's in Texas. What kind of research did you do to find out what life was like in these camps at that time? Right. Well, there's a wonderful book about this event. It's a nonfiction look at it. It's called The Train to Crystal City by Jan Jarbo Russell. I highly recommend it. Um, I've re- I read it many times in the writing of the book just to familiarize myself with the actual facts of what it was like to be a part of that process. And so it's a great book. And then um, through the reading of it, I was able to connect with um, internees who actually lived the They were there. Um, most of them are now in their 80s and 90s. They are children of the internees. So the parents have, have since passed. But many of the children who were sent there with their parents, it was a family camp. It was the only one like it where if, if a dad had been interned for whatever reason, um, he could have his family join him at this camp. They voluntarily gave up their freedom to do that, but it allowed families to stay together. And so um, being able to talk to these now adult, um, but then children of internees also was, um, was invaluable because they were there, they lived it, they remember it. And their memories, of course, are like um, being able to, to go into the past and, and visit it with them. Are they bitter at all about what happened to their families? I think there's all kinds of levels of emotion about it. Some of their parents never spoke about it. Some of their parents, you know, returned to the state maybe years later or maybe within a few years of the war. Some of them stayed, and they were told um, to, to keep the details of, of their repatriation a secret. And for many of them, they felt like that was an oath they could not break. And so I think for a lot of these children, they never really knew exactly how mom and dad felt about what happened to them. But they could maybe, you know, um, surmise what it was like to to feel like you've been accused of something that is not true of you. And so I think the emotions ran the gamut from, you know, the, you know, the unfairness of it and um, the inability to prove your loyalty, I'm sure, was probably very frustrating. And the fact that you... Um, you could not prove that you meant the state no harm at all, and you are not a threat, but you, you, you are unable to prove it. You know, in our modern times, there's a lot of talk about immigrants, what it means to be an immigrant. And mm-hmm. reading your book, I can't help but think we really haven't learned from our, from our past. Unfortunately, no. I seem, it seems like we are still uh, on the road to understanding that people are not countries. You know, people are individuals first. And I think before we are culturally or ethnically or racially anything, we're human. And we have a lot more in common than not. And you know, everyone believes the same. They laugh the same. They cry the same. They express love the same. So I feel like when we're having a conversation about what it means to be an immigrant, we have to talk about what it means to be human and to understand that, um, especially here in America, everybody except for Native Americans are we're, we're children of immigrants, so that needs, I think, needs to be a part of the conversation as well. Have you ever had a friend or a friendship like the one between Elise and Mariku? I think I do. I have a friend who I've known since I was 10 years old, and I'm in my late 50s. And even though we've not lived close geographically in 40 years, she is still my closest confidant, and she lives in Alaska, and I'm here in California. And so the times we get to see each other seems... Um, far too infrequent, but I feel that kind of kinship with her, and it's, it's one of those friendships where if you pick up the phone and talk, it's like no time has passed. I think there are, those kinds of friendships are wonderful, maybe even rare, but I feel like they're a part of the, of the best experiences we can have in life. 
And I guess on another level, it's that, you know, there's also in the book this friendship between Elise and Ralph, which is a completely different kind of friendship, mm-hmm. but also defines who, who she ends up becoming. Right. I think that that character, Ralph, plays a pivotal role in her life about kind of rediscovering, well, who am I? Because all of this happens to Elise when she's in her early teen years, which is the time most of us are forging our identity. And and hers is being like, it seems like it's being peeled away, peeled back. Like she's, she, she feels like she's an American teenager, but that's not how she's being treated. And that's not how other people see her. And so when you're in those kind of vulnerable years, when you are on the cusp of who you're going to be the rest of your life, I think those are, it's important for us to um, feel like we know who we are and the people in our lives, our parents and the, the friends we make, they help us discover who we are. What do you hope readers take away? Well, I think with a book like this, where it talks about kind of um, how we look at people, is that I think a, a reader can take away from this book whatever they want from it. If they want to be enlightened or entertained, I think that can happen. I think if they want to understand better how we approach just the whole idea of you know who are we really and who decides who we are, there's that part of it. I think if they want to know more about World War II and how we approach it as a nation, there's certainly that. So I think it can probably meet a reader at many different levels. If nothing else, I hope they just take away that, um, you know, this idea that um, um, how, how we look at people matters, how you treat people matters. And um, when you make decisions about how you're going to treat people, you have to look at your own, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and, and see, well, how, how, would I, how do I want to be treated? And I learned also all those things, but also how unbearably hot it can be in Texas in the middle of the summer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it was. It's it's South Texas. It's almost in Mexico. And yes, it was. I think that too is kind of like um, part of the crucible of what these characters go through is that intense heat. It is. It's almost like it can burn, but it can also cleanse. And so it, it's kind of a metaphor for a lot of things. I think. Well, the book is the last year of the war. Susan Meisner, thank you so much for spending some time and talking to us about it. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Parting Glass, the debut novel from Gina Marie Guadagnino, borrows its title from an old Irish folk song. And it's the Irish immigrant experience that figures prominently in her book set in the 1830s in New York City. She came by our studios to discuss her upstairs-downstairs novel with a modern twist. The Parting Glass is about Mara and Shawnee O'Farren, Irish twins who come over to New York from Ireland in the 1830s to make a better life for themselves. And they both get jobs in the household of the Waldens who live in Washington Square. Mara can hide her Irish accent, so she becomes a lady's maid, which is a much better paying and posher job. And Shawnee gets a job in the stables. Things get complicated when they both fall in love with Charlotte Walden, the daughter of the house. And I guess what, what's really like an interesting twist to it is that we end up in a love triangle, but this love triangle includes a brother and a sister. I think sibling rivalry is also a really powerful motivator uh, in life as in literature, and I thought that would be an interesting complication. Actually, uh, Shawnee was the later development the, in the original conception of the story. It was mostly just about Mara's unrequited love for Charlotte. And it was as the story progressed that I came up with the idea to include her brother as one of her rivals for Charlotte's affections. I can't even imagine how the book would have progressed if he wasn't a main rival. 
I, I think that's actually why he got added in. Um, there wasn't quite as much tension. Um, a character like Charlotte would just be expected to marry a man of similar wealth and status as herself. And the idea that Mara, her servant, could compete with that kind of societal pressure is just absurd. So adding a complication in that Charlotte had the capacity to be so transgressive as to fall in love with another servant in the household really uh, amped up the tension uh, in Mara's unrequited love. When we think about this particular time in history, I think a lot of people might imagine themselves as like getting to swish around in one of these big dresses (laughs) at these grand balls. And they don't really think about all the different kinds of people working behind the scenes to make sure all these things go off. Right. What what drew you to write about these servants? I think that the stories underneath the ball gowns are the more interesting ones. There's this really famous illustration. I think it appeared in some popular women's magazine, and it's kind of a cutaway of a woman in a ball gown, I think um, maybe from the 1860s or so. And in the cutaway, you can see all the layers of basically her underwear, um, from her pantalettes to her corset to the caged crinoline to the petticoats to the um, just all of the apparatus that existed so that she could look like this beautiful, serene woman in a ballroom is just incredible to me. And I think this book is sort of a manifestation of that image. It cuts away at the smooth silken veneer and you get to see all of the mechanisms that exist to allow that to be possible. I love that you brought up uh, this idea of women's dress at the time because I was sent running to Google to your reference of light skirts Mm. for prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And why don't you tell us why they were called that? Oh, sure. Um, It's actually very literal in that uh, the material that women who um, engaged in sex work would wear would just be lighter and they would wear fewer layers. It's hard to you, you actually can't take your gown off in that kind of situation. So most sex workers, especially streetwalkers, did not actually get undressed. They just hiked up their skirts. And it it actually, for upper-class women who had all that apparatus under their skirts, they needed help to hike up their skirts. There's nobody helping you when you're working the street corner. I once spoke to an author who also wrote about this particular time and said that, you know, you can't have this like rip your clothes off kind of affair because it would be very difficult and then also difficult to be redressed. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, There was a line I read once uh, in a work of historical fiction, it escapes me, but it was many years ago, where a woman is defending her honor. She was alone in a room with a man for, I think, about five minutes and it ruins her reputation. And she says uh, very complainingly afterwards, well, how could he have possibly ruined my reputation? I wouldn't have had time to get my boots off. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about uh, this time in New York City history and why you chose to set your book in this particular period as opposed to anything else. Sure. So the topic of Irish cultural and secret societies is a main plot point in the book. And... Uh, This was the era in which a lot of those societies began forming. Um, The ancient order of Hibernians, or at least a highly fictionalized version of it, makes its way into the book. And this was the era where 
lots of nativism and violence against immigrants was being perpetu- uh, was occurring. And so the uh, ancient order of Hibernians sort of formed and stepped in at this period. And I really wanted to set the book at the advent of the formation of those societies. And, you know, I was uh, reminded a little bit almost of, you know, the scene, I guess it's the precursor to what you see in something like Gangs of New York and that kind of stuff. You can start to see where that came from. And it certainly existed before the period that um, is depicted in Gangs of New York. It really, the the idea of these sort of factions has always existed in New York to some degree or another. But it started getting a lot of press and publicity and public attention outside the circles that engaged in that gang violence during this particular era. That was another component that was really important uh, to me in terms of situating the book in the 1830s. And and you can't help but think all the discussions we have nowadays about modern immigration, how America's attitude toward the new immigrants kind of see it seems to be a constant across the board of how people treated new people coming to seek a new life. It was actually very depressing for me as I was editing this book to realize how little had changed. Actually, when I had written the drafts of the book, it took me five years to write the discourse around immigration was very different. Um, we were talking about um, how to support DACA and um, how we could find pathways to citizenship for dreamers. And that was the environment in which I wrote this book. Um, but by the time I got around to selling it and editing it, um, it was a very, very different national discourse. And it was so striking to me that some of the exact language that um, I had read about in anti-Irish propaganda is coming up again today. Obviously, you spent a lot of time researching it. Was there something in the research that that struck with you, that sticks with you, or that you saw and you thought, oh my God, I have to make sure this makes it into the book? <laughs> um, let's see. I, I think I'm a little bit judicious about including extraneous bits of research. One thing my editor, Trish Todd, said to me, which I think is a really great piece of advice in terms of writing historical fiction, a lot of writers, she said, you can see the note cards in the writing, you know, where they wrote, um, oh, I have to include this really cool fact. Um, And she said that one thing that is always great to strive for is where you have things out smooth, so smooth that you can't see the note cards. (laughs) So I think in my case, it was actually a reversal of that, there were some things that I had to go looking for, historical details that were incredibly important to me, but we don't have a wealth of resources for them. Um, I think one of the things that really drove me crazy were 19th century menstrual practices. It was such a shameful thing that not a lot of people wrote down what they did, but it was just a fact of life for women. You know, women menstruate. They have to do something about it every single month for most of their lives. Um, So researching that was really grueling. Another thing that I found difficult was researching uh, hairstyles for women of color during the period. There's a lot of documentary evidence for what uh, slaves on plantations did with their hair, but not what women of color who were dressing up and presenting themselves to society did with their hair. And that was a real struggle for me. Uh, You mentioned that, and all I can think about is sugared curls. Yes. 
Can you explain to me what that process involved? Yes. And this is actually a process um, that women of all races uh, eventually ended up using in their hair. But you have to straighten the hair with a hot iron. And then you take a sort of, I guess, a primitive curling iron in that, you know, it's a rounded piece of iron that you've heated on the fire. And you dip the straightened hair in sugar water heavily, heavily concentrated sugar water. And you wrap the hot uh, iron around the sugared hair and it sets it in place. And it's incredibly time consuming. It will singe and absolutely ruin your hair. In fact, a lot of women who engaged in this on a daily basis ended up having to wear wigs because their hair would fall out because when you, I mean, everybody who's used a curling iron today knows your hair has to be really dry or you're going to singe your hair. Um, but yeah, it was an incredibly time-consuming process, but it was very, very fashionable. I also can't imagine what the bugs must have been like in summer. Oh, probably terrible. I'm sure the <laughs> bugs were terrible for, for everything. Um, yeah, since nobody they, was bathing that frequently anyway. Right. This time in New York, the you know the books that you read, you really get a sense for how dirty and grimy and yeah. smelly it must have been. That's actually, you know what? That is one detail I really had to work in. Um, the miasma. There, uh, I was reading about how in the years after the collect pond was filled in downtown, it was obviously worse when the collect was still open and it was an open pit of, you know, waste and water. Um, but there would just be this miasma that would settle over the city and this pervasive smell that would get everywhere and it was amplified if it got the least bit warm out. So I did have to include a couple of references to that because this takes place in a few years um, after that had started to alleviate, but it was still very pervasive. Tell me about the title, The Parting Glass. The Parting Glass is the title of an Irish toasting song. And it's about uh, the last drink of the night. It's about um, saying goodbye. It's about uh, sort of that affection you get for people after you've been drinking with them all night and you have to say farewell. And um, it has like a lot of longing and um, uh, nostalgia in it. And I thought that it's one of my favorite songs and I thought it would be a lovely coda to the book. So there's a scene, uh, an epilogue at the end of the book that sort of ties the parting glass uh, to its title. So why don't you tell me what you're working on next? Are you sticking in in this time period, this era of New York City history, or are you uh, branching out? So I have just completed one manuscript that's set in England in the 18-teens at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. It does feature, it actually uh, discusses a lot of English colonialism in that it touches on um, burgeoning uh, Indian colonialism as well as uh, colonialism in Ireland. Uh, and it is going to be a reverse Gothic novel in that in a Gothic novel, which is kind of like an episode of Scooby-Doo, everybody thinks something supernatural is happening. And at the end, they pull off the mask and it's there's a perfectly normal explanation for everything that's going on. Maybe not normal, but rational and not supernatural and not weird at all. Um, in this book, uh, the reverse takes place. There are wild things happening, but the main characters pride themselves on being so logical and sensible and reasonable 
and rational that they refuse to accept that the actual explanations for what is taking place are just wilder than they could have imagined. And the paranormal is something that you've written about in the past, right? It is. I should I should preface it by saying there are no actual paranormal elements of this book, but there are some that will maybe seem paranormal until the, the ultimate conclusion. Um, and it's really funny. I have written a couple of different stories that deal with the paranormal but I never really consider it my my genre. I just sort of stumble <laughs> onto a paranormal element or something that seems too creepy to leave out. I think there's something about is it or isn't it, you know, and that can't yeah. be explained. I love the tension there. We've been talking with Gina Marie Guadagnino. The Parting Glass is your your debut novel. Thank you so much for coming in today and talking to us about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that's our show this week. Next time, we ponder what it means to be human with the author of an end-of-the-world story that's part sci-fi, part thriller, and big on hope. Until then, if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS80Books. We tend to put a lot of book content up there, and you also get a sneak peek at the stuff that we're working on. So until next time, happy reading. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.